Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a talk called Educating Your Emotions, given via Zoom for the Village Church, Denton. All right, so the big question then that Cheryl asked and that we should all be asking ourselves is, what about our Christian faith? What does the Bible say? What does God think about our emotions? So again, we have all these experts uh, from you know ancient times down to today telling us things about emotions a lot of with a lot of insight. Um, and I'm very thankful for all the insights of those. Um, and again, we do have a lot of emotions and we and they affect us. The question is, how, what is it, what does it mean to be a Christian? What, how does the Bible teach us how to handle our emotions and how it all fits together? And that's what I want to address in this second session with you. The short answer, and if again, if you have the handout, you can see, but I can just say to you as well, the short answer is that the biblical Christian understanding of our emotions is nuanced, it's powerful, and it's effective. It's nuanced, it's powerful, and effective. Um, I don't want this to be an advertisement for a book of mine, but Bo mentioned at the beginning, so I'll just say uh, that this all comes out of work I've been doing for quite a while on what I'm calling the the Christian philosophy, meaning that what I've discovered and what the point of this material tonight and in this broader book is that the Bible is very sophisticated and really deserves a place among the great philosophies of the world. Of course, we believe the Bible is more than a philosophy. We believe it's a it's a religion, meaning that it's speaking divine truths about the Son of God incarnate. All that's true. I'm not saying less than that, but I'm saying I think we've often forgotten that the Bible is also giving us a true philosophy of life, one that is worthy and I think superior to every other philosophy I've studied. And I've studied a lot of philosophies. Um, and I think the Bible is very remarkably sophisticated and nuanced on this, including on this huge issue of what our emotions are and how to handle them. And so I want to give, so the, again, the biblical Christian philosophy or understanding is that our emotion of emotions is nuanced, powerful, and effective. Slightly longer answer to that, that I'll spend 20 minutes talking about here. I have three moves I want to make in this. One is uh, emotions in God's world, secondly, educating or sh- or sculpting our emotions, and then what are some practical things we can do all based on the Bible. So the first move, and John, if you give us the next screen here, emotions in God's world. So emotions, the, the simplest thing to say is that from a Christian perspective, emotions are a basic part of what it means to be human because they're a basic part of who God himself is and how he has made the world. So let me unpack that. So first, God's emotions. In the Bible, you may be surprised to know, although as soon as I say it, you're probably going to recognize it, that God is actually described as having emotions all the time. Emotions such as compassion and anger and joy and jealousy, and grief, and satisfaction, and most of all, of course, love. And, you know, love is 
more than a more than an emotion. A lot of times you'll hear people say love is not an emotion. Well, I don't know if people say that. Maybe they do. But love is a choice or love is a verb. That's true. But of course, love means emotions as well. Yes, there are things we choose to do out of love. But if there's no emotion in it, then it's it's not really love. I'd suggest to you. And God is described as love in precisely that way. Very often, God is described in ways that we would say are anthropomorphic. They are like humans because that's how God is. We're like him is what it truly is. And But the problem is, is that out of a, a concern, a proper concern that humans have had to not think of God's emotions and not to think of God completely from our terms, theologians have often uh, emphasized what is called impassibility, and maybe you can hear that word passion inside of there, impassibility, which is a, a an important Christian doctrine, but unfortunately, it's an important Christian doctrine that has been misunderstood by many Christians. What the, the doctrine of impassibility means is that God is not controlled by his emotions in this in the way that you and I tend to be, so that, that he, he is not uh, he, he can have anger, but he's not controlled by his anger. He has um, jealousy or he has grief even, but he's not controlled by passions. And so the doctrine of impassibility emphasizes that God is not like us and that he is always completely perfect and balanced and simple in the sense that he is singular and whole. The problem is that a lot of times people have misunderstood the doctrine of impassibility to mean God doesn't have emotions. And then you just have to write off all of these true biblical texts that are talking about God having emotions as just metaphors or just images. But I'd like to suggest to you, that's, that's a misunderstanding of the doctrine of impassibility. It's not saying that God is emotionless. It means he's not controlled by his emotions. And so that's a very important first place to start because the point is emotions are part of who God is himself. And if you need some further proof of that, then we go to the second point here which is the fact that Jesus himself clearly has emotions. Jesus, who is the perfect image of God incarnate. Um, one of, I'm a, I do teach New Testament, and my area of specialty is the Gospel of Matthew and then also the Sermon on the Mount within Matthew. And one of the things I do when I teach this class on the Sermon on the Mount regularly is that I've actually collected together a whole bunch of uh, film versions of the Sermon on the Mount, like different Jesus films, and I show them, and sometimes I have to compile them together, and I show them in class just to sort of see how different filmmakers have interpreted the Sermon on the Mount. And what's very interesting is that there's one film in particular that a lot of my students, and you would probably be in the same boat, um, feel a little awkward about. And it's it's called the Visual Bible, and it's got a Jesus in there. He's a famous actor. His name is just slipping me, but he's a, a really great actor. It's called the Visual Bible. And what's upsetting, I think, to students and might be to you as well, um, when they watch this film version is that, first of all, Jesus has an American accent. And we all know we like our Jesus to have a nice British accent because that's what we like as Americans. So that's the first problem. But the second problem is that he's very happy that the Jesus all throughout this film smiles and jokes with people and has his arm around people and loves people. And even in the Sermon on the Mount, some of the very absurd things the Sermon on the Mount says are clearly meant to be kind of taken as almost comical in how extreme they are, right? In the sense of like a plank in your eye, et cetera. And what's very interesting about the student's reaction to that film is that I think it reveals that, again, we don't expect Jesus to have emotions. 
we expect him to be this sort of medieval painting where he's dour. Well, the one emotion he can have is sadness, I guess, right? He's a man of sorrows. Even though interesting, the New Testament never describes Jesus as a man of sorrows. That's an Old Testament uh, prophecy, which is not untrue, but it's just that's not something the Gospels actually portray him as. And in fact, if you look at the Gospels, you will see that the Son of God incarnate describes Jesus as very emotional in the good sense of that, right? Um, he is not one who is stoic. And what's, and what's very interesting is that we often think of Je- Jesus in stoic terms, which was the dominant philosophy of his day. But what's striking is that stoic, if you were to look at Jesus, re- just read the Gospels from within the perspective of stoicism, you see that they're, incl- they're intentionally arguing that he's not a stoic because he's described with all kinds of emotions and he does things out of his emotions. His primary emotion in the gospels, when you take them all together, is compassion. That he's a person of great heartfelt, deep felt compassion for people. He's not apetheia, he's not separate from the world. He doesn't just say it doesn't matter, he's very compassionate. Secondly, he's described as angry. He's often angry, especially at people who don't have compassion. <laughs> he's not usually, he's not angry at sinful people. He's angry at people who don't have compassion for others. And then he's also described as a person of great joy. And so just at the basic level, we see that if you believe Jesus is God, then you need to believe that as the true representative of God, that includes being emotional, that these are not bad things. And then the third point of this here is just to think about the rest of the Bible and how it talks about our emotions as good and even necessary. Just think of the book of Psalms. The book of the Psalms is full of emotions. It is constantly depicting people who are who have emotions. I just realized I didn't start my timer, so I have no idea where I am on the time. I'm going to count on you, Bo, to tell me where I am. So, um, the But the Psalter is full of people expressing emotions and not condemned for that. And those emotions are not always positive emotions, right? They are lament, they are grief, they are anger, they are questioning God. How long, O Lord? Psalm 13. And one of my dear sons just today, we were talking about this actually after lunch, and he said, um, you know, Psalm Psalm 13. He had just read that, and it was a, you know, why? How long, O Lord, will these things be? And so the Psalter, right from the beginning, you know, this. Thing at the heartbeat of the Bible shows people expressing emotions to God, and they're not condemned for that. And then think about how often the Bible actually commands that you and I have certain emotions. Rejoice. We're commanded to have joy, to have compassion, to be patient, which is really not just an action we do dutifully like a robot. It's something out of a heart of compassion, to grieve and regret things, to fear and to not fear. The Bible actually says both of those things, right? And especially to love, which, as I said before, is, is yes, it, it's a verb, but it, if you don't have a, an emotional component to that, then it's not truly love. I always think of the great illustration that John Piper gives that many of you have probably heard. If you show up on your anniversary with flowers and your men and your wife says, oh, that was so wonderful, you shouldn't have. And you just say, it's my duty. I love you. Obviously, that's less than a totally virtuous response, right? There should be compassion and something going on at the heart. If you also think about the fruits and deeds of the fruit of the spirit and the deeds of the flesh, if you were to go, we don't have time to do it ourselves right now, but if you were to go and look at Galatians chapter five, it's remarkable that the person who is filled with the spirit, the primary way that they are described in contrast with the flesh is by a set of emotions. Just, just go and look at it. It's, it's remarkable. So for example, the acts of the flesh are described as 
And some of these are actions, some of them are emotions, and some of them are a combination of them. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. You can notice all those have some emotional component. Some of them are straight up emotions. By way of contrast, the spirit-filled person uh, manifests an opposite set of emotions. Think of what Galatians 5, and 23 says. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And do you remember what Paul then goes on to say? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So notice the difference between a spirit-filled person, a Christian, and non-spirit-filled person, a flesh person, is whether they have crucified certain ways of living emotionally and have a different set of emotions. So the point is, it's not that emotions are bad. It's that they need to be sculpted and educated by the spirit who indwells us in certain ways. And one more thing about this, about our good and necessary emotions, and that is if you just think about how emotions are a necessary part of what it means to be moral or godly or righteous or virtuous, whatever term you want to use. Again, think about the importance of emotions in having remorse, the importance of emotions on the other side of having compassion, not just being dutiful, but actually having something on the inside of you that responds in a certain way. What is Jesus' critique of the Pharisees constantly? It's not that they were immoral people. They were very moral people, way more moral than you and me. They fasted, they prayed, they gave alms, they, gave, they tithed way more than we do, but they lacked a heart of compassion towards those in need. So there's an emotional deficiency between Jesus and the Pharisees. That's very significant to think about. And then feelings of justice and guilt and shame at when we do wrong, shame is an appropriate emotion, satisfaction of doing right. All of those are essential to the light, the human life, the virtuous human life, the moral godly life entails and contains certain emotions. There's more we could say about that, but for time's sake, I'll move on. So John, if you give me the next screen. So then moving towards this idea of educating our emotions. Now, the I'll just lay my cards on the table. I think the biblical view of emotions is the closest to that cognitive view, that Aristotelian view of emotions. Um, that is that they our emotions are trainable, they are educatable, or maybe better, they are sculptable. They are they can be shaped and transformed in certain ways. And that language, I think, is much better than controlled. And a lot of times, this is actually a great insight when I spoke with the uh, staff of your church a couple of weeks ago about these things. Uh, it was someone there who pointed out how much more helpful it was to say educating your emotions than controlling your emotions. That was a great insight because that's exactly the point. If, when we say control our emotions, that's viewing them negatively, like there's something that need to be put down and, and whipped into shape or something. But I'm not suggesting that. And, and maybe even educating our emotions isn't the best term. My friend Eric Johnson, Dr. Eric Johnson, the therapist, when I talked with him about this recently, he said he thought educating our emotions still sounds like it's too much, just it's simple. You just think rightly and it's all easy which isn't what I'm saying, nor what he would say either, but maybe the idea of sculpting is a little better that it just doesn't have quite the same alliteration as educating your emotions. So I still went with this, but, but the point is that our educations can be shaped and transformed in certain ways. So 
I'll, I'll stick with educating our emotions because I think the idea is basically there that we start by being self-aware of what's going on inside of us. Because like I said, way back at the beginning, if we're not aware of our emotions, we will never be able to make progress in learning to educate them. And then we recognize that we're commanded to do things with our emotions, as I was just saying, and that we're actually commanded to develop in ourselves certain emotions. That if you and I lack compassion, if we lack love, if we lack patience, if we lack uh, any of those fruit of the spirit, those, those are deficiencies in us, and we're commanded, we're invited to actually grow into being fully human, made in the image of Christ, by actually sculpting, learning by the power of the Spirit to sculpt our emotions in certain ways. Yet, and this is a very important but or yet here, we must always, at the same time, be very, very careful not to be naive about the power of our physiology the power of our chemicals and our hormones, the power of our circumstances, the power of our genetic tendencies in some of us who are more toward more depressive or not, the power of trauma that it has in our life. And as some of you probably know, it's a very important idea that the body keeps the score. In other words, people that have been traumatized sexually or emotionally or other ways, physically, um, that the body remembers that and that affects your emotions in ways that go beyond just thinking your way through it. Addictions, all of these things affect our emotions deeply. So when I'm talking about educating or shaping our emotions, it's very, very important that you don't hear me saying that we, if we just think rightly, if we just kind of magically just, you know, buck up and, and buckle down and pull ourselves up by our emotional bootstraps, we can just fix everything. If you think that, you're in for a crash. And the greatest thing that God can do for you is bring you to the end of yourself because our emotions are not that simplistic. They are a very complex part of our bodies and our backgrounds and all of who we are. So hear me clearly when I'm talking about educating our emotions, I'm not talking about this simplistic sort of mode. In fact, when I, my wife heard me talking to Bo about this on Friday and she said to me afterwards, if you tell those people that all they have to do is think about it and they fix their emotions, I'm going to punch you. And she was absolutely right. <laughs> and so this is for her because that's absolutely right. And I, and I agree with it. So anyways, the Christian view of emotions then I think is remarkably sophisticated. Let me just lay this out. Bo, can you give me a minute? How many minutes I got left here? Five? Okay. <laughs> so here's the Christian vision of emotions. Then I'll get to some practices and we will be done. So God wants us to experience flourishing. The biblical words for it are shalom or blessedness or even just happiness. That is what God's goal is from creation to new creation before the fall and at the redemption. The vision is of peace and shalom and happiness and fullness entering to the fullness of peace and humanity. My peace I give you, as Jesus says. That shalomness, shalomity, if I can make up a word, um, includes emotions because God has made us as emotional people. Jesus has emotions, God, the triune God has emotions, and we are emotional people. So the goal of shalom is not getting rid of emotions, but is having emotions that are aligned and peaceful. So. Our circumstances then, in light of that, really matter. And here is this fundamental difference between Christianity and Buddhism or Hinduism or Stoicism or any other religion or philosophy. 
that Christianity is realistic. It's, it's a realism that we are real people in real bodies and that our circumstances really affect us. What Buddhism will teach you is you need to recognize, you need to believe that that nothing really exists. And the key is to get separated from thinking about anything in the world and being controlled by it. That is the opposite of Christianity. Christianity says there is reality and that that reality affects our lives. It affects our bodies. It affects our minds. It affects our emotions. So the goal of Christianity is true shalom, not what the Stoics would teach or what Buddhism would teach, ataraxia or nirvana or loss of self or some enlightenment or realizing that you're really a God. None of those things is what Christianity says you should do with your emotions. All of those are alternatives. And of course, some other alternatives are just escapism, right? Hedonism, alcohol, drugs, food, sex, whatever it is, all the other, none of those are obviously going to solve. But the religious and philosophical offers in the world, almost all the other ones say nothing is really real. You just need to be free from it. Christianity says, no, this is a real life. You're a real embodied creature and it matters. So an example of this, I mentioned I was going to say something about Marcus Aurelius and I love Marcus Aurelius. I actually love the Stoics. I read the Stoics all the time, but whenever I read them, I feel this mixture because part of what they say is super helpful and part of it is so dead wrong. Marcus Aurelius, for example, says this, choose not to be harmed and you won't feel harmed. Don't feel harmed and you haven't. So notice his logic. He says, whenever someone harms you, 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 can, you say, I'm going to choose. It's all about the mind. I'm going to choose not to be harmed and then I won't feel harmed. And then he says, if you don't feel harmed, then you aren't really harmed. Okay. Now, if you think about that from a Christian perspective, it's very interesting because on the one hand, there's actually a lot of wisdom in that, right? If you can say to yourself, somebody does me wrong and you know somebody tries to harm me or actually does even harm me, I'm responsible for my reaction to that. They're responsible for their actions, but it's up to me to learn how to handle that emotionally. That's actually really true and really helpful and really mature. But what's fundamentally wrong about that stoic view is that there really is harm done. People really do harm us. And people really do do things to us. That you can't just say, I'm not harmed because I choose not to feel harmed. That is foolish and naive, right? Because a Christian realism view says there is evil in the world, there is good in the world, and that our circumstances really matter. So the hope of Christianity, and here's the key, the hope of Christianity is not a denial of our emotions, or a denial of circumstances, the hope of Christianity is that God is going to redeem the real world. That God is actually going to bring shalom to the entire world. This is what the kingdom of God is. This is what the new creation is. That God is going to fix the world and fix us. And that we are longing for that. And the solution is not to deny our emotions or deny reality, but to embrace them as part of the training of our hearts in a broken world to long and hope for God alone. So we as Christians are in being invited to learn to be aware of what's going on inside of us and to not deny that, but to embrace the lament, the brokenness, the anger, the wounds as gifts to enable us to look to God so that we might hope fully in him. Our emotions are a crucial part 
of what it means to be a real human in a real Christian world, longing for God to really bring shalom in our personal lives and in the world. So let me move to the third and final thing in our last minutes here. So what do you do with this? How do you practice this biblical, very beautiful, nuanced view of emotions? The world is real and that their emotions are real. Emotions are a gift. And yet we need to, uh, to direct our hope to God. So two things to say here. And again, let me reiterate as we close here that mental health issues are real. If you are deeply depressed or have any number of other issues, let me encourage you that part of God's making of the world is giving medical and psychiatric and psychological counseling help. Get medical and or psychological help if you need it. See a counselor, talk to a pastor, see a therapist, get psychiatric or medical help, chemical help. Create a network of safe people with whom you can be real and vulnerable. Journal, pay attention to your body. You need physical exercise. Those things are important. Just on the way driving to my office this evening for this time together, one of my closest friends called me because he just needed to check in. As we say, he just needed to tell me what was going on in his marriage and how he was feeling about some situations in the midst of the stress of the quarantine. And it's really important that you both be that for other people. I didn't offer him any advice. I just created a safe space, a safe container for him to express those and just told him, I hear you. I see you. I understand why you feel that way. I'm here for you. You should be that for other people and you need to find people in your life that can create that safe emotional space for you as well. But specifically from the Bible then, in light of, in light of those big things I just said, here's a couple of things that I think the Bible teaches us practically to do practical emotional practices, I like to call them, with our emotions. The first is reflection. The Bible is full of inviting us to think about certain truths, not as a sort of candy-coated, you know, everything will be fine, just take two verses and call me in the morning and all your problems will go away, nothing like that, but invited us, the Bible invites us into habits of reflection about who God is as a father and son and spirit who loves us and cares for us. It's all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. You think of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 9, where the Israelites are told, they're taught to teach children who God is, to talk about who God is as you sit at home and we walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up, to engage in symbolic activities that remind us of who God is and his faithfulness. That's an intentional habits of reflection about who God is. And when I think about the New Testament, I especially think about the Sermon on the Mount. And do you remember what Jesus teaches? Say, for example, in Matthew 6, he addresses the issue of anxiety head on. And he says, what do you do when you're anxious? And you, and it's easy for us to misunderstand. And he says, don't be anxious. He's not, he's not being, you know, insensitive to the reality of anxiety. He recognizes that humans are going to be anxious. Jesus knows and prays the Psalter himself all the time, where there's all kinds of anger and lament and anxiety. Jesus is not anti-anxiety, but he's teaching us in the midst of anxiety, one of the important steps is to reflect on the fact that the Father in heaven cares for birds and cares for lilies, and you are so much more valuable than them, he says. And that's just one example of the way that Jesus teaches us to process our emotions, not to deny them, but to embrace them and then put them through 
the, the reality of reflecting on who God is for us in Christ Jesus. And the second one I'll give, and we'll end up with, end with this then, is to pray through our emotions. And there's, we could add Thanksgiving in here as well. Giving thanks is actually a great way to educate your emotions. But here I just want to say something about both confession and supplication or requesting. You know, when you think about the real negative emotions of shame and guilt, which again, Pluchik's wheel doesn't even have, and that Stoics and Buddhists and Hindus and others would say, those are bad emotions. You just need to deny that they exist in your life. Christianity is realism. And it says guilt and shame, there's false guilt and shame for sure, but there's also real guilt and shame that we all feel. Maybe it's when you wake up in the morning and you remember something you've done, or maybe right after you've done something horrible, you, God gives you the gift of guilt and shame. Again, there's, there's false guilt and shame. So I'm not talking about that, but the real gift of real guilt and shame, when you and I have really done something, those are gifts to us to direct us back to God. And what Christianity provides is a way that I've not found in any other philosophy or religion. It enables us to actually process those emotions in the presence of a God who cares for us. He invites us to confess. He doesn't just say, oh, you know, those aren't real. Don't worry about those emotions. Nor does he say, I've got you now. He says, confess. Confess your guilt and shame to me, and I will forgive you. You think of David after Bathsheba and Psalm 51 and then Psalm 32, how he describes that before he confessed his sin, he felt sapped of all energy. But when he confessed it, he found joy. It's not simplistic, but it's very real. And also supplication. One of my favorite verses in the Bible should be yours as well. First Peter 5, 7, cast your anxieties upon the Lord for he cares for you. Notice the Bible is not denying your anxieties, not denying your emotions, but it's saying that the, one of the ways to process your emotions, to acknowledge them, that you're having them, and then to pray through them, to ask God to come and help you process them and help you in your situation. So there's more that could be said. My overall point I hope you're getting is that the Bible cares about you and God, because it's reflecting God, God cares about you. He welcomes your whole gamut of emotions. God's not anxious about you and your emotions. He welcomes them. He's not worried about you at all. And he invites you to, as a real person living in a real body, to process these emotions with beloved friends and in his own presence, because he cares for you so deeply to embrace this is what it means to be fully human as he by the spirit is shaping us to enter into the fullness of shalom that we'll never fully experience here. We can have little morsels of here as we await for God to establish his reign upon the earth in peace and beauty and goodness. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.